Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Sarah and Tony, thank you guys so much for joining me today. I want to start by just kind of setting up what we're doing here. This is technically the inaugural episode of the Healthy Egos occasional miniseries on You Have Permission. Healthy Egos is Tony Jones and myself talking about whatever we want to talk about. Much like Sarah, you and I have had a talk about whatever we want to talk about. Uh, ongoing sort of sporadic series. But have you branded it? You're, we haven't branded it, no. Because I'm already got t-shirts printed mm-hmm. on Etsy for Healthy <laughs> Egos. Well, Healthy Egos is a pretty snappy uh, name <laughs> and it's a, it is so a joke. Apt. It's so apt. apt. It's accurate. It is a play on the fact that both Tony and I have very healthy self-esteem and probably not a tiny bit of narcissism, but I don't believe either of us meet criteria for personality disorder, gratefully. And the, the the way these series often start is that I have an idea, like every few months I have an idea for another podcast that I'd like to do, but I don't have any time for that. So I just turn it into a series on your permission. That is how the I Don't Believe in That God series, for instance, got started. And then that's how the episodes with Sarah got started. And now that's how Healthy Egos is getting started. And it's perfect to have you with us, Sarah, here today to kind of 
you know, welcome Tony to the club. You're like the upperclassman and he's the freshman. Well, I'm also know? like the token non-healthy ego person. Like I'm not the, you know, white guy with a platform. So uh, very happy to be your token. Thanks. Well, <laughs> thanks for being our token. And thanks for tying the idea of healthy egos now forever to white males, which it was not, in my mind, tied to that. It was more about our latent traits of narcissism, which. Yeah, but you are literally have. two white guys with a podcast. No doubt. <laughs> you are keeping this from being a sausage fest. And for that, I'm supremely grateful. How long until the term sausage fest is canceled? Anyway, oh, I'm sure it's already been probably canceled. already happened. Uh, yes. But Sarah, really quick. Do you think yeah. your ego mm -hmm. is unhealthy? Is it healthy? What's your take? Yeah, I think like a lot of women, uh, I am quite good at masking a lot of insecurity and shame. And I, you know, I mean, anyone who's been through a PhD program knows a thing or two about imposter syndrome. Uh, and yeah, no, I, my life has been marked by insecurity and self-loathing at different points in my life. And so like, I'm a, you know, I'm a fairly healthy place now, but I am somebody who views narcissists and people with extraordinarily healthy egos with a lot of uh, a, a, a sense of mystery and wonder that there are people like you in the world. And I have always looked at you with uh, a little bit of jealousy that, that life is so much uh, more fun. So Jaffrey and Soren happen to be at the zoo while we're recording this. And it reminds me that I'm happy to be your caged gorilla, Sarah, that you can uh, wonder how the these weird narcissistic specimens live but safely behind the cage and glass, right? Um, yeah. Okay, so speaking of narcissism, let me just give a little table of contents for what we're talking about today. We are gonna start by talking about Joshua Harris, the uh, famous evangelical author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, as well as a very popular um, pastor and speaker and author of other books over the last two decades, and his recent coming out of Christianity and being at the center of this recent Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, just briefly, Tony and I are engaged in these like response episodes. These are on the patron only feed. This is not one of those episodes. You don't have to have listened to the Josh Harris episode of Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. If we reference something from that episode, we will explain it. We will do an actual response to that episode later, uh, along with the next full episode that comes out on that feed. We're also going to talk about, because Josh Harris sort of brings these things up for us naturally, we're going to talk about celebrity and the role of celebrity among pastors and Christian leaders, as well as the semi-problematic term of guru and what what separates uh, a guru in the negative sense from someone, a, a Christian leader, thinker, podcaster, pastor, whatever, writer, who's not trying to be a guru. Also, I will be clear to separate that from the Eastern use of that word. And then at the end, if we have time, I want to touch briefly on narcissism itself, although not for too long, because I do have an upcoming episode in the next couple months with Chuck DeGrote on narcissism and the church, narcissism and pastors, and he's an actual expert on that. So we're not going to step on his toes. Okay. That's the table of contents. And with me here are Tony Jones and Sarah Lane Ritchie. Tony, can you start us off by giving us uh, a very brief uh, recounting of Joshua Harris's career and kind of why he's back in the news, uh, the evangelical sort of news. Yeah. He, jo Josh's rise to fame 
was, you know, he, I think he must be a little bit younger than me. I'm 53. I, I'm guessing he's mid forties. His rise to fame happened. Well, very young for him. He was a, like a homeschooling rock star, basically. Uh, his dad, I think had written a bunch of books on homeschooling. This is not my world. Okay. Like I grew up yeah. in mainline progressive Christianity. So I'm, always kind of on the outside of that evangelical aquarium looking in. I'm, I still am. I, I, I flirted with it, you know, because of uh, my days in emergent and I was briefly in campus crusade in college. So I have some touch points to evangelical subculture. I think I understand it. I can even speak the language, but it's, but I also want to acknowledge that's not my people. That's not my tribe. Like I went to public schools. My parents wouldn't have let me go to a Christian college. Much, le- I mean, homeschooling they they thought was crazy, anathema, in, yeah. in my family. But Josh grew up as this homeschooling rock star, and he started publishing a magazine when he was in high school about uh, some homeschooling magazine deal, and he became kind of semi-famous in that world. And then when he was very young, and I don't know, before he turned twenty, he published a book called "I Kiss Dating Goodbye," which became a runaway bestseller. And he argued in that book that basically young adults in America should court one another. We should return to traditional modes of courtship in which parents are involved. There's no physical intimacy prior to marriage and things like that. It wasn't really that shocking of an argument, I don't think, in a lot of very like pietistic evangelical culture uh, churches and stuff. But the fact that it was being written by this kind of wonderkind young guy, right? That's a part of it, like coming from the youth and then this youth is signing on. Yeah. Yeah, From from the, I mean, from the guy who's uh, has hormones coursing through his body and he's saying, don't only not look at porn, don't even kiss your girlfriend. Yeah. You know, and meet her parents and sit in her living room and watch a football game across the room from her and like wait, basically almost like a matchmaker type thing, like wait for her parents and your parents to agree. So the, the general umbrella under which this lived was called purity culture. And then there became these things of high school kids, particularly girls, would go to purity balls with their fathers at the, in the fellowship hall of their church, super creepy, like almost dressed up like brides, brides and grooms with their dads. And then they would put on a purity ring, like pledging to their Josh Harris is not responsible. He's not responsible, Dan, but this is very much a part of the world that he, that he was thriving in. And he wasn't saying don't have purity balls. Like he was speaking at those banquets. Like he, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And and girls would put on rings and and pledge to their fathers that they wouldn't have sex till they got married. Kind of a creepy deal Um, for, for modern day Americans. I mean, maybe not creepy a thousand years ago, but yeah, he then became a pastor at a very conservative Calvinistic church on the East coast. That was part of this thing called sovereign grace ministries. He ended up leaving that pastorate. I mean, he left the pastorate. <laughs> Here's what's funny about this episode. He left the, He left being a pastor of a megachurch to go to seminary. That right there, that's a whole episode <laughs> right there. <laughs> Which, Dan, you and I have talked yeah, about on the patron right. feed is one of the things that I, I'm surprised Mike Cosper hasn't drilled down on a little bit is that all these pastors and elders at Mars Hill, none of them went to seminary. 
Right. They're all like autodidacts, supposedly, and brilliantly mm-hmm. theological without any formal theological training. And I know all three of us are, you know, very much supportive of higher education and formal training and licensure and things like this. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, Josh left and it then it, it all kind of very quickly came tumbling down once he moved to Vancouver to pursue theological studies. I don't even know if he ever finished those. It doesn't sound like it. Yeah. It sounds like he basically lost his faith in seminary. He lost his marriage. He lost his faith. There's been all sorts of backlash. There's a woman on the podcast episode we're discussing who did a documentary film about him Mm -hmm. while he was still kind of mid journey toward atheism. Mm -hmm. This is Jessica Vander Vander Wingard. And I just listened to her, her whole episode. Uh, She co-hosts, a podcast about purity culture called where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, they had a whole conversation about that process for her. And she's, she was actually very kind in it, even though it was, yeah, she, she definitely got the short end of the stick in that whole situation. So you, you, you know, you wonder in a situation like that, did Josh, was Josh deceitful with her or did he just not know where he was going to end up? Who knows? It, Who knows? Yeah, her take it's, was, her take was more the latter, yeah. but that he did make some, sort of career-minded decisions that she doesn't necessarily, you know, that hurt her, even if she doesn't necessarily think it was unethical for him to do it or whatever, you know? So the latest is, here, here's where we bring us up to the present day. Joshua Harris, who made a ton of money as a mega church pastor, best-selling author, traveled around the world speaking, was, you know, on the cover of Christianity Today, It made a huge reputation bringing people into Christianity. Now he's an atheist and he wanted people to pay him to deconstruct, help deconstruct their faith. And he got a bunch of clap back on that and withdrew this kind of Patreon type, you know, pay pay-per-view course. I think it was a one-time fee of like $275 to take um, his class, to yeah. take his class I do. I'm excited to eventually get to that because one of the things to talk about with the celebrity slash guru angle is like expertise versus mere charisma, and I think that's one of the things going on with that. Like, I'm so you're an expert in deconstruction now because you've you know what I mean. Like, yeah, he's uh, been doing it for like five minutes, so you know he's definitely qualified. So I know Sarah. I want to let you jump in here because you've got. You've got some thoughts on Josh Harris, and there are very interesting thoughts I'm excited to hear. I want to say one more thing to set it up, which which is just that the rise and fall of Mars Hill dedicated an episode to Josh Harris. It's it's at this moment the most recent full-length episode. And in it, it's definitely, uh, I think we can safely say, the weirdest episode of the podcast thus far. There is a moment where Mike Cosper, the host, appears to be trying to convince Joshua Harris on the air that really he just doesn't understand the gospel and that if he did, he would not have left the faith. That was an interesting moment. Then there is a moment later where Matthew Lee Anderson, who I interviewed many years ago for Depolarize about abortion, he basically says that this whole deconstruction movement is a bunch is a marginal experience that uh, some people have had, but is not most people's experience of evangelicalism. And I think, doesn't he also say it's uniquely modern? Like no one in the history of Christianity for 2000 years has deconstructed their faith. Uh, I don't remember. This is kind of like a blip on the radar, you know, like. (laughs) That's the sense I got, blip on the radar. 
which uh, some of that will probably be Tony and I will mm-hmm. will talk about that in one of those patron episodes. But mm-hmm. there's a moment where Mike Cosper says to Joshua Harris, basically says the problem here is celebrity culture infecting the church. And Harris pushes back very interestingly and says, isn't Jesus Christ the biggest celebrity of all time? Isn't basically every religious founder a celebrity? Do we not worship celebrities by default if we are religious? And there's, I want to get into, I think they're missing each other a bit there and there's some interesting stuff. I just wanted to get that in. There's a lot of background here for this episode, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of throat clearing, but I know that you're going to get into that. And so I just wanted to make sure that people had understood that that's part of the background. So Sarah, Mm -hmm. you now have the floor for as long as you want, because (laughs) Tony and I have, it's just been a white male, healthy ego conversation thus far. Let's get you in here. Yeah. Uh, no, it's really good setup though. And it's a very interesting time to be talking about Josh Harris because we had these events that happened very close to each other, right? He had this, uh, this launch of his new course where he's like guiding people through this deconstruction process or something. And then it's followed very soon by his, uh, sort of implosion on social media and him pulling that course. And then very shortly after that, we have a fascinating conversation between him and Mike Cosper. It's fascinating, not because of any like new revelations, but because you see some really interesting dynamics happening from someone who's like in evangelicalism still versus like someone who's definitely left Christianity altogether. And it's, it's highlighting different themes that are like super triggering for people in different ways. And I found myself experiencing this in a really like visceral and emotional way. And you know how there are like some topics where you know you should probably not say anything for a while because it's just like one of those things for you that you are not going to be able to talk about um, without getting like quite heated and like losing coherence and just like becoming like overly emotional about something like that is Joshua Harris for me. So that's why you're here on the show. Yeah. Well, but I'm actually gl- I'm actually glad that it's been a few weeks since all of this kind of went down. Yeah, you because... were like, Dan, let's record tomorrow. I, I want to talk about Josh Harris. In fact, invite him on. You know, it was like you were like all over it. And I was like, no, I was okay. literally like I was literally like, get Harris on. We're talking now. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, no, I was, I was livid. I was, ext- I, but, but it's been a really interesting few weeks sort of unpacking what was going on there. Why was I yeah. so livid about all this? And so I think the first thing to say is that I'm a person who is extremely ambivalent about Joshua Harris. I identify with this guy's life all, all across the process. So him as a human is somebody I can definitely identify with purity culture, the, you know, sort of, I could say goodbye. I was like hardcore in that. And then now I'm also really, really close to where he is in terms of his uh, spiritual journey, his faith life, like like on the margins of Christianity and, you know, open to what is, but not kind of predefining what what is and uh, increasingly uncomfortable in religious circles, you know, which is really uncomfortable for a theologian, but whatever. So I just want to say that like, I do have like a lot of personal empathy and points of connection with this guy. But that being said, yeah, ambivalence towards towards him. Um, Joshua Harris is a person who I think I can safely say, I thought a lot about this. I think he probably has had more of an effect on individual human lives, sexuality, marital relationships, body shame, eating disorders, self-hatred in various forms than maybe any other person alive in America today. I think that 
if you were to like rewind the clock and take Joshua Harris out of the picture, the world might, the evangelical world might look very different. And even people who are no longer in that world, but were in that world and were incredibly affected by him at a certain critical juncture in their lives. Yeah, I think the world might look very different without him. So let me, but let me unpack what I mean there. I know that he is not the only driver in purity culture. I know that he's not the, the sole architect of it, but he had an outsized effect, I think, for in terms of like individual characters in this, in this, in this scene. And it wasn't only his book. It's also the books that were, came after his. It's also like the, the speakers and the themes and the camps and the conferences that arose up out of this. You know, he started or he was, he was a, a co-creator, an active participant, and causing a movement that you know ran away from him perhaps but he was still and like very much a causal actor in all of this and i think what is what is true here is that he participated and contributed to a lot of people feeling today like they had some key developmental years stolen from them. You can't go back and put yourself into the body of a 14-year-old girl and with a 14-year-old mind and redo those years of brain chemistry, cognitive development, emotional maturity, relational maturity. Um, you, you, when, when you invest your life as a teenager in convincing yourself that you are not going to have sex until marriage, I was definitely one of the people who said, not only am I not going to have sex until marriage, I'm going to wear the ring and I'm going to sign the card. And I'm going to also say, I'm not going to kiss my future husband until I'm at the altar. And it was like such a bad thing. I've told, I think I may have said this on this podcast before, but if I could rewind the clock and convince myself to like say this and just have sex when I was 17, I would do it. I, I regret having maintain purity culture standards for as long as I did. I think it really, really stunted my sexual development. It has, it has caused so much pain and relational angst and, and struggle. And, and so I think if you were to, if, when you, when you zoom out and you see the ripple effects that this guy's work has had, not only on the people who were there, but on those people's current or past spouses and, you know, their children. And, you know, you look at the sort of, there are so many untold stories here people who get married and can't have sex, people who get married and, 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 and find themselves just hating themselves and, re, you know, resenting their partners and, and, and that stuff, you know, that is toxic in relationships. So, all right. So that's the, that's kind of like the first part here is that this guy had an outsized effect on the developmental trajectories of people all like so, so, so many people. And I think, go ahead. Do you want to say something? Well, finish your th sentence. Okay. And I think it's important to really emphasize that because a lot of people who did not grow up in that culture were a little bit surprised at the backlash against Harris when he came out with his deconstructing courts. Because they're like, why are you canceling him? What's the problem here? Like, he's just a guy who is, you know, and, and, and people who have like been through like the carnage <laughs> of Joshua Harris fallout um, are like, yeah, but he's still indirectly causing harm. Like we're still living with the like the effects of this guy. So him sort of like going through his deconstruction phase and then now like essentially offering to uh, offering us like the antidote to the poison that he injected us with. <laughs> That's up for a lot of people who are still kind of living with the pain of of having kind of grown up in the purity culture era. Yeah. So. That's kind of like, I think, important to note because a lot of people were baffled at the strong backlash against Harris. Um, in fact, we have mutual friends who are like, why does everyone hate this guy? Who cares? You know, and those are people who were not directly affected by him and are not suffering the consequences of, of his work. So I want to I want to 
agree wholeheartedly, full-throatedly with the effects of purity culture, which have been, I would say, astronomical and almost impossible to calculate. It's already popping up in, in interesting ways with clients, you know, and I'm sure it will be a part of my work with, with clients who are coming out of various religious systems that have been unhealthy for them for the rest of my career. And, you know, I've seen it in my own marriage, both effects in my own self, effects in my wife, without getting into detail. I, I just think it's, yeah, it's astronomical. It's just tens of millions of lives significantly changed. I do wonder, putting on a little bit of a sociological hat, like how much Joshua Harris himself is culpable for that. Mm -hmm. I think there was a tremendous amount of gravity within white evangelicalism for a movement like this. I think they would have picked another book if it wasn't his. People were terrified of AIDS. They were terrified of their kids getting pregnant and getting STDs. It was the height of kind of the plausibility structures of middle-aged white evangelicals view of the mm -hmm. world that mm -hmm. they, it was the best moment, late nineties, you know, mid nineties, late nineties of like, oh yeah, we all see the world as it must just be because right. there are right. 50 million of us and we couldn't all be wrong mm -hmm. kind of a thing. But of course, included in that worldview is like the plausibility of the imminent return of Christ a la the Left Behind books, which is a completely bonkers idea based on the flimsiest of evidence. So we already know there's a problem with those that big plausibility structure. Right. Um, so that's the only thing I would just, I, I just, it's a question I have. However, mm -hmm. he didn't ask the publisher to pull the book until like a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. And he's known about these issues for yeah. quite a long time. And so uh, it's, it's, it's very, it's very tough. Mm -hmm. I wanted to let Tony get in here on this first topic because i know you got more sarah which i'm excited to hear i just want to say that of those people you're talking about sarah like i'm definitely in that camp of someone who was shocked not so much at the backlash to his grift mm -hmm. of a month ago of trying to make money off his deconstruction which was just like so like patently and obviously a, a money play and, a, and an attempt to stay as a as a a player in the world of Christianity, even as one on the outside trying to pull people out of Christianity. No, it was more like when he left his mega church, then left his marriage mm -hmm. and then left the faith. Mm -hmm. And I saw people who came out of context, like you flipping out. That's where I'm like, does this actually surprise you? This is exactly mm -hmm. what, yeah. because at the time his book came out, I was not only a mainliner, I was a youth pastor. Right. So I would see people talking about his book or read his book or whatever and be like, yeah, if you worked with 16 and 17 year olds, you'd be like, give me a break. Mm -hmm. that, like mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. there's people having like getting blow jobs mm -hmm. at high school beer parties with their purity rings on. Like this is, it doesn't even work. It mm -hmm. just doesn't even work. Mm -hmm. So I'm in that camp yeah. because I wasn't in it that you're right, was kind of looking at outside, looking in evangelicalism, being like that. I, I don't, that's mm -hmm. just, I don't understand it. Right. So I think that he actually had an outsized effect on the wrong people. He had the biggest effect on the people who did not need any more rules, any more people telling them how to be perfect. Right. Wow. I think if you look yeah. at the girls, especially if you look at the girls who are sensitive, overachieving, 
worried about their bodies, like wanted to be good, wanted God to love them. Those are the ones who were like the most affected by his message. I mean, those are, were the ones who like bought that shit, like hook, line and sinker. And so, so this is actually an important thing that maybe Dan, you might want to like pick up in a later episode or something. Maybe there's this weird thing that happens where you take a a framework, like the purity culture framework, I won't kiss, I won't do anything sexual. And that can often end up not only preventing healthy development, but it can actually mask a lot of underlying psychological pain and trauma and oh, yeah. things that actually need to be dealt with. So abuse as well. So if you are somebody who has been uh, in any sort of sexual abuse situation, and someone comes along and basically says, you never have to deal with sex. You just like, just go put that, you know, move, run far away from sex. Sex is bad. Well, sex, you know, sex is bad until it becomes incredible. Once you put a ring on your finger and <laughs> it's, it's this, which is, you know, it's a I can attest story, to but... the, I can attest to the falseness of that statement. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, but there's this thing that happens. Eventually where, it got better. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I, I know, I think, <laughs> I think there is this thing though, where a lot like, like his kind of his, his project was used to hide a lot of mental illness that really could have been yeah. healed if, 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 if people were kind of needy, forced or, or had more, more space to deal with sexuality and, and, and the pain that so many people experience around sexuality anyway. Okay. So that's, I think that's, that's by the way, ahead. I just think that that's true of any rigid, Sure. set of rules yeah. that anybody latches onto for whatever reason is mm -hmm. that that rigid set of rules often masks very human uh, issues, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. psychopathology, mm -hmm. bad relational norms, bad, you know, yeah. bad habits, whatever, bad, uh, bad sense of self. And we just say, well, those problems don't exist. Uh, you must just not be following this rigid set of rules that are given yeah. from on high. So I, that yeah. that's not unique to purity culture, although yeah. we could probably say that since purity culture is so bodily integrated, that mm -hmm. it has a different set of consequences than, say, yeah. end times anxiety had for me mm -hmm. as a mm -hmm. kid mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Exactly. So yes, to all of that. And I think just the one final thing that I want to say about all of this is that I truly am ambivalent about Joshua Harris. It's like, I know everything I've said thus far sounds like I hate the guy. I really don't. I was in that world. I was like 100% on board with him. He was like five minutes older than me anyway. Like, what did he know about things? Like he was a product of his environment and was in some ways just like a, a product of a system, like a culture that you were talking about, Dan. Like he didn't have a choice in the family that he was, you know, put into and all of this stuff. So I, nothing but compassion for the guy as a guy. And it's been interesting the last couple of weeks because my sort of empathy for him has only grown with the uh, last episode of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill uh, podcast, his conversation with Mike Cosper. And I was astounded at how bad that episode was. I love this podcast, but that episode <laughs> I found to be incredibly poor. And I thought that Josh Harris actually came out looking pretty authentic in that. I think after his recent debacle regarding his uh his his deconstruction course i think that after that people were sort of expecting him to come across as like a money grabber who's just like in it for the bucks and stuff and he didn't come across that way to me at all i found his description of his you know moving away from the church as as, as being entirely relatable i totally get it and, you know, I think that there's, I mean, there's obviously a lot of pain that he's been experiencing. His, the, the bottom has fallen out of his life multiple times now in the last few years. And it's uh, something that many of us totally get 
I get it. You know, I think, uh, you know, uh, many others do as well. And uh, it's not always in public in the way that Josh Harris is, is, but it's, you know, it's there. And so I thought he came across as being very honest and open about kind of where he's at. And I thought that, um, that, that, that Mike Cosper did not handle his Josh Harris's journey in a sensitive and, uh, or even like very, like a smart way. Uh, I, I, there was a, a lot of evangelizing going on and a lot of uh, a real lack of a distinction between like dark night of the soul, which is what Cosper kept talking about and true deconstruction. And yeah. I think one of the things that I really appreciate, appreciate about Harris is that he's been pretty honest that he's not really playing ball with the people who posture as being gatekeepers for what deconstruction is or should be. There's a real, uh, there's a sort of a deconstruction light that happens where you have like, people saying, go ahead and deconstruct, but make sure that you end up back in like the main line. You know, <laughs> it's like, there's like a, there's like a, a sort of um, a light touch uh, deconstruction that we can create space for um, as long as you don't like find yourself on the outside of the fold. And right. Cosper was definitely like in that camp and Josh Harris is not, he's like, no, it's not actually that I'm not experiencing like the love of God and the dark night of the soul sort of way. It's that I truly am not finding this worldview to be intellectually and existentially compelling anymore. Right. <laughs> and, it's, and those are two different things. It's very different things. And so it's actually an important technical distinction that has extremely experiential effects. And so I thought that that was a fascinating conversation because you saw the kind of the authenticity of Harris's journey and coming, okay, full, full, full circle in conclusion, why was I upset about him putting out this podcast? I think that there is something about celebrities, gurus who, who, who have a platform and they just shouldn't have a platform. It's nothing to do with him personally. Like this guy could be like an incredible person, my best friend, whatever, but because of the things, the system that he participated in and was like a causal agent in, I don't think that he should have a voice or like a, a platform where he's like basically taking people's money and like healing the pain that he himself caused. There's something gross about that to me. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not because I don't like him. It's not because he doesn't have a compelling story. He just needs to find a different way of, of making money. Yeah, Tony, I wanted to ask you about that because... Obviously, some aspects of Josh's experience are different than your own, but some aspects I think are crucially similar. And you might have something to mm -hmm. say here. Like your you had a situation with your ex-wife, a very public falling out. You were sort of doxxed and your you had medical documents leaked, which were then misinterpreted in blog posts and a whole community basically canceling you earlier before cancel culture was a term that we now, you know, is on the tip of our tongues all the time. And you had a similar question that Josh had, albeit with more training than he had of, can I keep doing the thing that I do for a living? Because this is getting in the way yeah. of the fact that I've been a pastor, a writer, a speaker, right? So there's a lot there that's, that's overlapping, even though the criticisms are quite different, but the experience is similar. And I, I wonder if you've been thinking about that, if you have thoughts about kind of what he might be going through or anything in that world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought about a lot. I, I agree with you, Sarah and, and Dan and I were texting about this. I mean, earlier, but I thought it was a very weird episode. I don't quite see how it fits in with the whole Mars Hill narrative. I think it's very, a, a very kind of disruptive thing to drop in the middle of the story that they're telling about Mars Hill, but that's kind of beside the point. I guess for what we were talking about. And, but I also just want to say that, and I've text, I was texting Mike Cosper yesterday about the 17 minute episode that dropped on the Mars Hill podcast, which was 
freaking fascinating. Yeah. And we can talk about on the, yeah, on we'll the patron uh, feed. And I like Mike, but I also don't, I thought, here's what I know about the timeline. Like the interview with Josh Harris was recorded before he posted and then withdrew his right. course. So in part, it was the leaking of this guy's going to be on the Mars Hill podcast that brought everything to the fore. And then I just also want to say on this feed, because I think it was only on the patron feed, where I <laughs> I predicted that freaking Gungor would come out and support Josh Harris because he's doing the same grift. Like you bought all my albums when I was a Christian worship singer. And now you need to buy all my albums that are going to teach and, and like support my Patreon and everything that is going to teach you how to get out of the world that I got you into in the first place. So that's a, that's like the definition of a grift. Okay. But I'm not saying that Josh is, is disingenuous in this and he did pull it. And I don't think the guy's out to make money, but Dan, to your question, I mean, here's, what's interesting is that today for the first time since 2003, I start work on a church staff. The day we're recording this September 1st, I'm a pastor at a church, 15 hours a week, interim, yeah. very minor, 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 like tiptoeing into the shallow end but of the pool. But that's been 18 years. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. At a progressive UCC yeah. church that's open and affirming. And the, my boss is the woman is the senior pastor. One, she's one of my dearest friends. It's why I'm doing it. She kind of has my back in this because of course, we had a conversation this week that like, you know, people on the church are going to Google me and they're going to bring stuff up mm -hmm. and they're going to bring it up to you. And so let's get prepared, buckle our seatbelts to deal with that. Here's what I thought, Dan, to your point, as soon as I finished the episode, well, the first thing was my, my dear wife, Courtney said to me, why did you make me listen to that? Cause we listened to it on a drive. Yeah. And I'm like, you would hate the Mars Hill podcast. Because Driscoll's the you couldn't you can't stand him he'd be triggering etc. Let's just listen to this one. I think you'll find this one interesting. She's like <laughs> that was so boring. Like they didn't solve anything. Nothing happened. There was no movement. And here's what I walked away thinking, Dan. I thought, Josh, just go get a job, drive a UPS truck, like <laughs> anything. Be a private citizen. I have another friend whom I won't name, but who's been through really a ton of ups and downs in the church world, comes from a very, very famous family of preachers. And I've said to him before, I'm like, it seems like you think you deserve to be paid to talk about Jesus. And the fact is, you don't. Nobody deserves that. And you're constantly complaining. No one listens to my podcast. No one's supporting my Patreon feed. No one. I'm like, that's because like it, this is a free market economy, and people don't want what you're selling. Go find an act a, a real job. But it's first of all, there's two things. One is if it's all you've ever known, it is really frightening to leave it because like I know many pastors who've left a pastorate and have said to me. I don't know what else I would do. And obviously for 18 years, I've been doing other stuff. So people do reach out to me like, how do you write books? And how do you become a freelance editor? And how do you, you know, make, how are you making it? Right. But the other thing is it's extraordinarily addictive. Like everyone's talking about Joshua Harris on Twitter right now because of the Mars Hill thing. Now he's taking a lot of heat. It's, it's probably not super enjoyable for him, but he is, famous again mm -hmm. after many people had forgotten about him for a long time it's crazy 
I mean, I've heard from two or three dozen people I have not heard from in 10 years because they heard my voice on the Mars Hill in the, in the intro to the Mars Hill podcast. Right. So you're a little bit famous again, too. I'm like, t- not as I much as Harris, one, but yeah, I texted bit. one friend of like, now is this going to be in my obituary? And his voice appeared on the, on the best selling <laughs> rise and fall of Marcel podcast when he called Mark Driscoll an asshole, oh, God. you know? So I, every I, episode. Yeah. Every, yeah, every, every episode. You get royalties I mean, it, on yeah. that. No, it was the one bad part about that short 17 minute episode last, last yesterday is that my voice wasn't on it. Cause they didn't even do the intro. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just now, kidding. Welcome to healthy Just egos. Kidding. listeners. <laughs> I know. Okay. So yeah, Dan, I thought like, dude, your time is up. Just go like I worked for 10 years in the publishing industry. Just like go get a job. Provide. Does he have kids? I don't know. Is he remarried? I don't know. But like provide for yourself, provide for your kids, get to know normal human beings wherever you live, like embed yourself in community. I don't know. Go on your own journey, but do it privately. Like you, the reason people are angry is the pain. And just like you say, Sarah, I mean, it, that's such a great analogy. It's like, why do you buy the serum from the person who injected you with the poison. Like you don't buy the serum from the snake that bit you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, that's what I wanted for him. I wanted for him to just like, let it go and be okay. And I want the same thing for Gungor. Like you don't need to be a guru anymore, bro. Just like mm-hmm. go, go do something good for mm-hmm. the world, but do it privately. Mm-hmm. Now that this show has moved to an every other week schedule, if you are feeling like you'd still like an episode once a week, there is a solution. You can become a patron uh, through the Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the notes. And patrons get two exclusive episodes per month, at least. The most recent one, which came out last Tuesday, is a conversation with Dr. Robin Veldman, and she wrote a book about evangelical climate skepticism. And so I interviewed her about that book. I was obviously very interested in that topic, and we had a really interesting conversation. She walked me through some of the various theories that people have proposed, as well as what her own research uncovered about that phenomenon. And she comes from outside evangelicalism, and I found that to be an interesting and kind of refreshing Um, I don't know, change of pace. I feel like I often talk to people who have at least one foot in evangelicalism or who grew up in it. uh, And Robin is not, that's not her story. Um, And so anyway, I, we really hit it off. I'm (laughs) hoping to hang out with her uh, at the American Academy of Religion conference coming up. So if that gives you any indication of how much I enjoyed that conversation, uh, it ought to. Anyway, so if you want to hear that or any of the other ongoing patron-exclusive episodes, including all of these response episodes that Tony and I have been doing on the Mars Hill podcast, become a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. It's five bucks a month, although there is a sliding scale, and you can email me about that uh, if if $5 is financially difficult for you in this season of life. Patrons also have access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. That's a community of uh, many hundreds of people who are on similar journeys. And uh, even if they're not at the same spot, they're open-minded and open-hearted and are willing to have conversations about the difficult questions that come up as our faith changes, as we watch evangelicalism kind of crumble in certain ways. 
uh, or just whatever we're going through. All right, back to my conversation with Tony and Sarah. So, yeah, there is a sense in which maybe some people who have made a living having a public life or some sort of doing some sort of public work might feel entitled to continuing to make a living by doing public work. And I think that sometimes we might even as consumers of that work or just members of the public kind of buy into that, maybe because we Mm -hmm. will put public people above other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is no such entitlement that exists, right? Like just because, you know, you had one hit album in 2004 does not mean you are entitled to make a living as a touring musician in 2021. You have to have five more good albums to make a living, you know? Uh, So just because you've done this once, that's just not how our economy works. It's not how the world works. Certainly not how God works. God has not entitled me or you or Gunger or, you know, or Josh Harris to a public career. But I, I take your point and I think that that's like I, when you said, Tony, that it was like obviously a money play where my mind goes to is I'm more likely to interpret as a this is all I know how to do play, which you could say is a money play, but it's not about greed. It's it's it could just be about basic provision and a kind of the terror of learning an entire new skill or doing at least a, a partial pivot like you did to publishing, which is not entirely new, but it's not the same thing. Uh, and it's, and it's behind and crucially it's, it's the back office. It's not the front office. It's not the, the star player anymore. Sarah, mm-hmm. you want to get in on this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that you're hitting on something that's really important, which is that to be a, uh, a guru in an inappropriate way or in a problematic, to be a problematic guru, as I was texting you, Dan, is not to necessarily have uh, malevolent, malevolent intent to be uh, pathological and, and, and in a clinical way or to, to, to have evil intentions for the use of your influence. You know, I, I think that what, what is interesting is that people can stumble into being a guru. Dan, I think you're the perfect example of this, actually. So listeners of this podcast, especially people who are in the Patreon group, will will know that there's sort of like a running joke about not Dan being not my guru or not Dan not being a guru. But of course he is a guru to them. You know, so he is he he has attained some level of guru status with 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 a community that really values him. I think the the sort of the joke, the joke, the running joke helps to sort of diffuse all of that and to 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 sort of um, mitigate against a lot of unhealthy kind of trajectories that most people might go down. But it is a really interesting thing how, Dan, almost against your will, you kind of found yourself in a position where people are like listening to you and want to know what you think about things and are like actively engaged with you because they do see that you are, that you do have humility, that you are curious and that you are open to being wrong on things and that you are not positioning yourself as a guru. So it is really interesting to note that like, People don't always intend to become gurus. It's the crowd that makes them the guru. And a lot of times people are just like, hey, I'm just doing my thing. I ended up here. These people are now looking to me. I don't know what to do with that, but it can become addictive, right? So I think the whole addicting thing is really interesting. You might not set out thinking that you're going to become anyone's guru, but you find yourself there and it feels great. And so Dan, I guess my question for you, and you can like cut this in like editing or whatever, but like my question is like, 
have you found yourself having to wrestle with anything as you know the podcast has grown in popularity as you have people who honestly are like looking to you as an expert in deconstructing have you wrestled with sort of like your identity in the middle of all of that or do you find yourself having to push back against things within yourself it's a great question i'm not going to take it out in the edit I was already kind of writing a note about what you were saying, you know, is it really against my will? You know, like part of the joke, the joke of healthy egos is is a real truth. It's something that I do think about and that I, Tony and I actually text about fairly regularly is like, so who are the, like the kind of people who end up in these roles? And there is certainly a part of me that has been, has wanted to be public facing Almost, I've I've said exhibitionist in the past, but now that I'm uh, training to be a psychologist, that term <laughs> has a more technical meaning. But you know, kind of putting anything out there publicly and always wanting people to comment on it and consume it. If what from my first punk band and our demo tape to today's episode, right? Like mm-hmm. that's been a constant in my life for over twenty years, almost twenty five years now. And so I recognize that I, it's not totally against my will, but there, so, but I have to push back against it. It's, it's how do I find the balance of feeling gratified that I'm doing a kind of work that I think I'm well suited to and that I genuinely feel like God would have me do. And on the other hand, not letting that become my identity, not becoming uh, drunk with whatever limited power or influence that would confer, but it's, yeah, it's, it's totally, it's like a, it is a never ending active question Mm -hmm. uh, and topic for me. Let me just say a little bit about the term guru and kind of where we're going here before. I don't want to go too long without this. So the term guru, as I'm using it, I'm using it as a Western sort of pejorative, almost a caricature Mm -hmm. of like, the type of leaders that emerged in the in the states from the east in the 60s and thereafter the, sort of like a you know a, a salesman type who has a has a product that is basically some sort of enlightenment product like i have arrived more than you and so you can follow me and it will make your life better and i'll get your loyalty and support and that and maybe money depending in the exchange I don't mean guru in the sense that it is still used in the East in traditions where basically they are rabbis or heads of monasteries, right? Like father superior of a monastery could be like a guru in a particular school of Hindu thought and practice. So I, I there's a bit of a cultural appropriation problem with that term. I don't currently know what term to swap it out for, so I'm using it with that caveat. So what I'm kind of interested in is like, in the in the remainder of our conversation is sort of like what makes a guru versus a healthy leader and then what's that relationship like with celebrity because celebrity is both ancient in the way that Harris brought it up right like Jesus is a celebrity Muhammad was a celebrity the Buddha was a celebrity maybe still are you could say but also the celebrity, the way that like it's treated with Driscoll and the advent of the internet and podcasts and the ability, like basically the, the mushrooming of mass media, that's a different kind of celebrity. And they, and they actually brought in the Kardashians in a kind of a weird way in that episode. Like 
Kim Kardashian is famous for being famous. That's a new kind of celebrity. So uh, it's not clear to me that everyone's even talking about the same thing when we're using these terms, but that's where I'd like to go and sort mm -hmm. of hear your guys' thoughts on, on any of that. Mm -hmm. Can I ask the first question? Um, so, uh, so, so I wonder if, if there's something in the definition of like a guru that implies having people adhere to you in some way, right? Or, or follow you in some way, right? So yeah. um, we all have identities. We all find ourselves feeling like we have a kind of vocational like path in the world. Well, not everybody. We, we, we are educated people who are really fortunate and extremely privileged and are able to have a thing that we call vocation. But we, not everybody's vocation involves being like the, the leader of a, of a bunch of people, right? right? So like, for example, I am not a guru. In fact, I almost find my identity in being the not the guru <laughs> because I like to be the provocateur. I like to be on the marginal kind of like the edge, the kind of like the exploratory boundary pushing side of whatever thing I'm doing. So if I'm in a church back when I was in church, like I would be on the edge of, you know, but when I was, uh, when I was a theologian, I'd, you know, be pushing the boundaries of what is acceptable as a, as a, as a Christian theologian. And I love having a public voice. I love having a platform, but it's because I want to be showing my hand here. It's because I want to be seen as doing cutting edge, new exploratory things. I want to discover things about the world. And it's not like posturing. It's like, I'm truly into that. I think I would actually be almost a little bit uncomfortable if I had like a tribe following me. I'm like, no, 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 but that's not who I am. What I am is a person who is like, like dancing around the edges, making people uncomfortable. So I think there's something to uh, a lot of the gurus and the celebrities out there where they're like, they, they, it's like the following, the people following them that kind of contributes to their identity, which would be like different than other people's vocational identities. So I guess the kind of like a key question for me is like, is a guru by definition someone who needs people to be following them or are they just saying things and people happen to follow them? I mean, the way I'm using it, it would be that they are packaging whatever they're doing in such a way that makes it easy for people to follow. I, I think that would be a part, part and parcel of it that like just someone who starts living an awesome life and finds people around them, mm -hmm. much like the gospels present Jesus of Nazareth. That would be like the Eastern type of guru, which is not nearly as problematic as what we're as what we're talking about. Yeah. So I think for our purposes, yes, it's somebody who's making it. And here's where you can donate or here's where you can join the Patreon or, you know, whatever that like there's like a devotion or something. There, yeah. Well, no, I, I, I wouldn't go that far. I would just say, oh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe there is maybe anybody who is this type of guru does want devotion. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah, loyalty of some kind. That's okay, where it okay. gets really scary to me. Tony? Um, a couple things I'm thinking. One one very kind of pragmatic and another more theoretical and sublime. And the pragmatic, you know, when you think about Josh Harris, like I know the fickle nature and the arbitrary nature of the publishing industry. It could have just as easy. There, there is some, there, there's not some, there's like, a million alternate universes out there in which Josh Harris's book was like published, sold 3,500 copies. He spoke at a couple homeschooling conventions and then it went out of print. Like mm -hmm. 
any number of the 12 books I've written and any number of the hundreds of thousands of books that come out every year. Like you're probably right, Dan, something in the, in the zeitgeist at the moment and something about his youthfulness and surely something about his existing network and platform, but still, still it was, unless you say it's a God thing, which even Josh Harris doesn't say anymore, it was just an arbitrary thing. And then what happened to Sarah's point earlier is, is something Josh had no control over. And that is that the, you know, like the Christian publishing industry and the Christian speaking world and that, that is like any part of the publishing industry. It's extremely formulaic. They will copy success. Like, Oh, if that guy wrote a book on purity culture and dating that sold 350,000 copies, we, every publishing house then came out with a book hoping that they would sell 35,000 copies, just like 10% of what he did. That's still a wildly successful and profitable book. And then they book him to speak at conferences. Why? Because if Josh Harris speaks, he's the best-selling author. More people sign up for their conference. They make more money. Like the, the, the capitalism of evangelical subculture just like came, just like sucked him in. You know what I'm saying? Like a like a sea creature swallowing Jonah. And he didn't have a bunch of control over that. That just happened to him. Um, And that's just how it works. So anyways, it could have just as easily been, he didn't become a guru, but also then to, to the, to the sublime, you know, Max Weber, who founded the field of sociology, did a bunch of study on religion. And he called this the routinization of the charisma. Basically he looked at the, history of movements of religious movements, particularly in France, but elsewhere as well. And what happens is at the beginning of a religious awakening, people, the, 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 the founder gives away the charismata, whatever it happens to be, whatever the spiritual gifts are of that particular awakening, the, the founder always gives them away for free. But the second generation are like, whoa, 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 we can't just be giving this stuff away. Like we've got to build churches and we got to pay for our kids to go to college and, you know, et cetera. So then they routinize the charisma. So it's like, oh, it's not, we don't just speak in tongues any old time. We speak in tongues on Sunday mornings while the offering plate is being passed. Oh, you don't just get to have your kid baptized, like become a member of the church, go through our baptism class, have your kid go to confirmation. You know, are you tithing? They routinize it. A clergy class develops, they routinize it, and then they begin to make money off of it. So I wonder if what you're talking about, Dan, this like implicit in this guru thing that they're making money off of it is something about that Weberian analysis of what happens in religious movements is that people are like, we can't just give away this stuff. <laughs> like we have to commodify this and they say it as like, Oh, these are sacraments, not just. And so it goes back to something you were saying earlier, Dan, uh, how I would say it is the, the celebrity. It, it's not unlike if you talk to a Catholic priest and they say, there is something ontologically different about me because of my ordination and my vows and my celibacy. That's why I get to, say these magic words over the Eucharist that no one else can say. I mean, you'll, you'll have a hard time. You know, you, you might have to torture them to get them to admit that they think they are ontologically superior to lay people, right? 
but there's a similar thing going on in evangelical culture that these, you don't just become a, 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 a pastor of a mega church by luck. You become it because God's blessing is upon you. God has called you to this certain thing, which it, what it implies is there's something ontologically superior about you to everybody else in your congregation or who listens to your radio show or who buys your books. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> that sort of implicit superiority complex, right? I mean, and, and it also makes me think of Jesus, which I'm sure Weber was thinking about as well, of like, it is all free, you know, like they're just picking grain on the Sabbath and consider the lilies and don't worry what you'll eat or wear. And like, there is a real sense in Jesus that like, you, you do get a sense that once it became institutionalized, it doesn't look like his ministry quite as you much think? anymore. Like when, like when Ananias and Sapphira got like struck dead because they were withholding some of their property from the church in, in like yeah. Jesus grave, like Jesus body wasn't even warm. Well, it still was warm because he was resurrected so body, yeah. but, <laughs> but yeah. you know what I'm saying? The yeah. already they were routinizing it in the book of acts. I guess yeah. I, I don't mind the routinizing in the sense of, we do have to figure out a way to live and probably the mountaintop experience of being with the original leader is ultimately unsustainable, like as a fact, sure. sociologically, psychologically, it is not sustainable. I cannot live my life as if I were one of Jesus's 12 disciples or the couple thousand people mm -hmm. following him around. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I literally Can can't. Is it out of bounds to actually talk about the Bible on this podcast? Because right, I'd yeah. <laughs> like not. to at this point, okay, I would like come, to at this point say, in, please. this is exactly Peter's instinct on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yes. Is he says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's put up three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And it is the only time in all four Gospels when ask Jesus a direct question or makes a direct claim on him. And Jesus literally does not respond. There's no response given. So Mark records this, the cloud descends, the cloud ascends, and Jesus starts walking down the mountain and says, don't tell anybody about this till the son of man is risen from the dead. So it is a natural human instinct yeah. to try to commodify, routinize, and, and hang on to this, this transcendent, liminal spiritual experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, see, there are, a few, there are like a couple of different like things happening here. So on one hand, we have this like evolutionary story of like celebrity, like the origin of celebrity. And it is an evolutionary story. I mean, we have the word celebrity and we think we, you know, it means, it means something about glossy magazines, but like... I mean, there. I mean, ever since humans were humans, like biological humans, they have had minds that were being drawn towards strong leaders, charismatic leaders, and there are yeah. theories about why that is. So this is like very much a part of what it means to be an evolved human being, uh, is to be drawn to figures that are not you, and that you, where you can like vicariously participate in something that is transcendent in some way. So that's like an evolutionary story, but then like something happens when it gets brought into like religion as like an institution, because like when you are talking about like a transcendent God that is like putting the rubber stamp on everything that you're saying, it kind of morphs a bit. I mean, you might have like a Kardashian celebrity or something, but they're not saying like that they're speaking, the Kardashians are not saying that they're like speaking on yes. behalf of like the transcendent creator God. 
the Mark Driscoll's of the world absolutely are really problematic. And that's really interesting. I have like one thing from the Bible too, that I can say, which is like, I never talk about the Bible. So here we go. So Paul, the apostle Paul, when he was Saul first, uh, he, I think was the, uh, the, the original, um, Joshua Harris, right? So he is persecutor of those Christians. You know, he's like arch, arch Jewish leader. He has a dramatic encounter. He's now a Christian and starts going around offering his own little deconstruction course from Judaism. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Once you see it, once you see it, you can't unsee it. I know. But, but see, the thing is, he was saying, Uh, he did take a long time off though. And he, he spent what you tell me, Tony, a decade yeah, with, well, we the, don't, with the apostles. We don't know. Well, we don't time. know exactly even what he did, but he was off the scene for close to 10 years in part in Jerusalem, but also like probably back in Tarsus or something. We don't know for sure. But yeah, he 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 leaves in early in the book of Acts and returns in the second half of that book. But to if Sarah's I were, point, yes, if well, if I were uh, in the market to write a a biblical leadership book about people who lost their faith or changed it, I would call this the Paul model. That would be the name (laughs) of the book. And it would, it would suggest a five to 10 year period, maybe get a degree, spend some time in the real world, spend some time with people whose lives you want your life to look like and pick a couple people who have authority over you to tell you when you're ready to go into public work again Man, this is like this is like a free idea for somebody. I bet you could <laughs> I bet this would sell some copies. But I'm not gonna write it. Okay, back to it's you. It's very sorry. meta. Make some money off of telling how people like when you're allowed to make money off It's of a this, good yeah. model. It's yeah. a good model. So um I don't know if can I can I pop in here for a second? Yeah. I don't know if I didn't want to cut you off. No. So there is uh there is a I have two things to say. The first is, as I was saying, I don't mind the routinization of things in one way. So you were talking, Tony, about a Catholic priest and many of them would, if you press them, or maybe you'd have to torture them to get them to admit to you that, yeah, because I am a celibate priest, I'm in the priesthood of the Catholic church, the mother church connected to Peter, the rock, whatever, for whatever reason, that I am like actually at a higher level than lay people and average Christians and and non-Christians. But there's another way of conceiving of one's work as a priest, which is just to say, what makes me a priest is that I have responded to a call from God and oriented my life differently. I'm not married so that I have time and energy to work among the poor, to be around for people who need help help in their lives, to marry and bury people, whatever, right? To, To administer the sacraments. I'm fine with that. It's the difference between a phrase that I've really enjoyed Cosper using about Mark Driscoll, which is God's man, right? Like this is God's man in this moment on a mission from God, a mission from God. And like, it's the, it's the difference between, Hey, I'm a leader of this church because I am here to serve as a part of this community. And I am the pastor of this church because I'm God's man. I have been chosen. I'm special. Those are two different ways of routinizing the charisma, the charism, whatever, but I'm totally good with one. And the other one is I'm, I need to think about this more, but I want to say might be inherently spiritually abusive because no human being can produce receipts 
for that claim. There's no way to back it up sufficiently that you're not exploiting people, whether you mean to or not, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, by putting, by taking on that big of a mantle. So I'm not claiming that I have to think about it more in the spirit of being a careful researcher, but I want to say something like, yeah, that's always going to be abusive or potentially harmful, potentially abusive. So, you know what I'm saying? I just, I want to put that wedge in between those two types of doing it. Mm -hmm. And it's fine. You can make a living being a priest or being there to serve. People make a living as plumbers, as electricians. They make a living as landscapers. You can, you should be able to make a living marrying and burying people, leading a church community, running the space for the AA meeting. I mean, that's a, that's a perfectly good way to make a living. I don't have any problem with pastors being paid. In fact, they have pretty shitty jobs a lot of the times and they don't get paid well enough for a lot of those jobs. But then you have the exact same structure. I'm rambling a little bit here. I'm, I'm getting ramped up. I mean, but then you have the exact same structure, which in some situations like a non-denominational church community like Acts 29 allows for a Mark Driscoll to pay himself purportedly half a million to a million dollars a year and spend a quarter million dollars. This is documented on church money to goose his own New York times bestsellers sales for which do not go back to the church. I'm almost positive, although I couldn't say it for sure. So it's, it's the whole thing is messy and there are different ways of doing it. Again, this might be something I think you and I've talked about on the patron podcast, but one of the things that Phyllis tickle said before she died, she just kept saying to me, look, the biggest issue facing the church of the future is authority. Like in the past, it was pretty clear, you know, up until the reformation, it was abundantly clear. There was a hierarchical authority and you knew your spot in that hierarchy, whether you were the Pope or you were a parish priest or whatever. That started to break down with the Reformation. But of course, in the 21st century with the Internet, like we're having a crisis of authority across Western civilization. Mm -hmm. And it is absolutely vexing the church. You know, and I was like, I spent last week with a bunch of pastors whom I was supposed to take into the Boundary Waters, which was closed for, for forest fires. So we just ended up hanging out at and my cabin in central Minnesota and fishing and playing poker and, and generally hanging out with these Stop guys. It. Stop it. Sorry. And, but here's, what's interesting is like, these guys come from a version of Christianity, not, you know, very much in line with Driscoll and Harris and that version of Christianity. And I asked these guys like, well, what's the authority structure at your church? Cause they're not part of a denomination. Well, they don't have, they don't have a board of elders. They don't have a church council. The pastor founds the church, the pastor runs the church, and that's how these churches are run. And successor, there's, yeah. there's no, there's no church governance structure that is in, infallible. We like, we've all seen mm -hmm. whether it's a Presbyterian session or a Methodist annual conference or an Episcopal vestry or a Baptist mm -hmm. board of elders, or you go, I could go on and on and on. They all have abuses in them, but it does seem to me like in these versions of evangelicalism, I mean, these guys would say my authority over me is the Holy spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course they like 
hermeneutical naivete in a statement like that, that as though you can just hear the Holy Spirit, there's no interpret, you know, you're not interpreting the, uh, the, the voice of the Holy Spirit. You just know it. It's abundantly clear. And to, again, not, we'll, we'll talk about it on the patron feed, but this latest episode, the 17 minute episode about Driscoll's origin story, like he changed it over time to saying that like, like, God, in an audible voice, God told me, start a church that plants other churches, marry grace, and and train men. Like, and teach, and preach aud- the Bible. And it, yeah. And preach the Bible. And he says this over and over and over. It was an audible voice from God. How do you know it was an audible voice from God? Well, who else would tell me to preach the Bible? You know, this is mm-hmm. his answer. So yeah. th- there is something, you know, it's, it's so, again, it's not my version of Christianity that I came out of, but it always confounded me, this thing that people can just say, God told me, blah, 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 blah. And and a lot of people sitting in the pews are like, oh, if God told you that, then, I mean, who am I to say it? God didn't tell you that. I want to make sure we get to two more things here. The first is that I asked patrons on the Facebook group, like, for in their mind, what is the difference between someone who is setting themselves up as a guru in the negative sense and someone who is not? And I want to read some of what they wrote. And then I also, I spend a little time thinking about my own kind of principles. I've never sort of written them down before, but just trying to think of like, it is something I'm aware of. I did talk about it enough that that little hashtag, not my guru joke got started. It is, it is an important thing to me. Uh, we could maybe end on that. I, I wrote down some stuff. I'd like mm-hmm. to hear your guys' thoughts on those. But so I want to just throw out this stuff to you that the patrons wrote back, which I thought was great. A lot of people talked about humility, transparency. Th- these are this is a non-guru, right? Uh, a guru would be focused on the number of followers. A guru ha- would have a lack of credentials. Would be narcissistic. Again, I think either could be narcissistic. The difference is between having answers versus being curious or being on the same journey as your readers, listeners, followers, whatever. And then a couple interesting ones. There's a capitalist or profit motivation to gurus that there might not be for someone else. Although I think we've we've problematized that slightly, but it's definitely there. And then this one I would never have thought of. The, the unhealthy guru takes part in systems of oppression mm-hmm. and the non-guru does not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, I've been kind of chewing on that one. So mm-hmm. uh, any, any reaction on any of those? Yeah, no, this is a really interesting question. I think what I have kind of, kind of progressively realized over the last however long of thinking about this is that like we don't, I think we almost don't have an option, but to be drawn to leaders. Like, it's just going to happen. Like we're like, people are, we are evolved. Like we, this, we, we are always going to be drawn to people like that are not ourselves and that are leading groups of other people. So, and that might both be evolution in terms of tribes and clans, but it also is about cognitive heuristics. It is just easier for me to go, well, I kind of trust David French on the Afghanistan war. You know, or I kind of trust Jonathan Haidt on moral psychology. And I just am like, rather than read 10 books on moral psychology Mm -hmm. until he messes up, he'll Mm -hmm. be my guy on that. Like I'm saving myself a tremendous amount of time. Some version of it is completely inescapable. I think that this is like 
part of a larger story, like evolutionary and cognitive stuff. And it's, uh, yeah. So I feel like we, we almost like don't need to waste airtime on like deciding whether or not it's good or bad that people are drawn to gurus right. or drawn to celebrities. Can't do anything um, about it. Exactly. It's there. It's there. I mean, and people's lives are often changed in systems where there's a very strong charismatic leader. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. in the Presbyterian church. I know firsthand that not having strong leaders is not always the best response to an overly authoritarian kind of like random evangelical Bible church. It's it's not like the answer to, to bad gurus like Mark Driscoll is not to then have like death pie committee in the mainline church. Right. So there is like, I think it's fine just like recognize that people can really flourish and thrive when they are involved in a community with a strong charismatic leader. That doesn't necessarily mean it's like a problem. And I guess I think where I'm coming to more and more is thinking that the problem is not so much with the leader, with the guru, but perhaps with the people who are consuming. So we, we tend to think about or talk about this as though like Mark Driscoll is like single-handedly like coercing everybody to come to his church and coercing everyone to follow him. But there are people who are thinking people who should be able to be self-critical in some way and be self-aware about their own motivations and responses. And so I guess going forward, like I would like to see us doing a better job of equipping like people to be more responsible consumers of their gurus or their leaders or whoever they are choosing to follow and be aware of their own sort of needs or brokennesses that are like being met by a leader that is, is not actually a very healthy leader. So that's the thing that I'd say. Interesting. Tony. Yeah. I mean, I'll totally dovetail on that. I, I think that people, this occurred to me during the middle, like during the emergent movement is that people are so, ready to abdicate their hermeneutical authority to others. Meaning how they read the text or how they think about their faith. The text and the the world. world. And just, if you just think of the, like, that's kind of the school. I come from this like phenomenological hermeneutical school of thought. Okay. And, and everything in the world is an artifact that needs to be interpreted. You know, whether it's everything, everything is incoming to you have to interpret it, make sense of it. Of course, the sacred text of the Bible is one of those things. It's a very important thing, central thing in many people's lives. And it's extraordinarily complex. It's between two and 3,000 years old, depending on which part of it you're reading. You know, it, it, it was written in different languages. It, 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 the people who wrote it were not living lives that are really anything like the lives we live now, other than that they were bipedal and they, you know, ate food and breathed air. But it, it kind of ends there. So, so it's, it's an extraordinary work of interpretation to make that text relevant to your life. And it's a lot easier to just say, will you just tell me what it means? Yeah. Will you just please just tell me, is being gay a sin or not a sin? Because it's just too hard for me to figure this out on my own. I have my own gut feelings, but I've been told for years that my I'm depraved. So my gut feelings are not trustworthy. Therefore you are my spiritual authority because you wear a collar, a priestly collar, or because you stand in a pulpit with spotlights on you and a headset mic on Sunday, you are obviously an authority in this. Tell me how to think about this, not dissimilarly to the way that Americans currently are like, look, I, I mean, Joe Biden seems like a good guy, but my Republican state Senator says that he eats children's blood. So he must be right because I trust my Republican state Senator or the chair of the GOP in my County or whatever on Facebook says this. So people just abdicate their hermeneutical authority to others. And 
Sarah, to your point, I mean, it's hard. I This is what I felt like the emergent movement tried to do for 10 years is to push it back on to people and say, no, 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 we're all in this together. <laughs> like we can figure, we need to figure this out all together. It, it, it's not just up to me because I went to seminary to figure this out for you. But I mean, most people, most people have busy lives and it, it's just one thing they're, they're not going to get yeah. to. Well, just in the interest of time, I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. I, I, there, <laughs> there are at least three things you said, Tony, that I want to either elaborate on or push back on a little bit. Uh, I'll just mention one in passing, which is in what ways are we similar to the people who wrote the Bible and lived during those times? And I think this question of, is Jesus a kind of a celebrity? Is Muhammad a kind of celebrity? Is germane to that question of, did we think of leaders the same way? then as we do now. In what ways has that changed? All that stuff is really interesting. I don't think it's just that we're bipedal, whatever, but I have to put a pin in that. So I just want to, I want to get your guys' take on these. I have three principles here. And the the first one is that I have tended to, these are my, these are my principles such as they are for avoiding becoming the wrong kind of guru, as I thought about it yesterday as we prepared. And I don't know why you're already laughing at me, Sarah. What is that? What is that about? I mean, this is the most guru thing ever, right? To say, I like, just okay, wanna... I have two principles I would like you to agree with. <laughs> so I'm saying such as they are, I've never written them down. I'm just, but I was trying to think about it because this seems relevant and, and we could chat about it for a minute. So the first is that I tend to emphasize options and possibilities. That is from the very beginning of this show. There's a bunch of atonement theories. There are a bunch of thoughts about who is saved. There are are a bunch of opinions about X, Y, and Z. So that's one way to keep from being a guru. I try to emphasize curiosity over being directive. So I try to bring people on that are interested in stuff that I'm curious about. And less often, I will just bring someone on that like, I just wanna amplify their message. I'm already on board 100%. Usually there's at least some 30% that I'm, kicking around or have questions about or something like that. And then the third one, and this one is a little trickier. I try to defer to experts when I can, and I try to cite my sources if I can. So as often as possible, I'm not, I try not to make it sound like I have just thought of something myself through some sort of, you know, revelation, but rather that it's someone else's idea. And this is the person whose idea it is. But here's the caveat personally I do struggle here. I prefer guests where I can feel somewhat of a peer, less of a differential in prestige. And I think this is a narcissism thing for me to go all the way around. Like, I think there's value in not having big name guests on the show. And like, there's value in that sort of, of like getting people who have really cool ideas and you might not have heard of. But I also recognize that like, if I have some of these people on, I f I'm going to feel inferior and I don't like feeling inferior. I want to be a uh, part of the team in some way. And that's selfish and ego serving. And, and that's also at play, but it does have the effect maybe of making me less of a guru. It might actually make me more of a guru that I don't have people that I am deferring to more fully. So that might actually be fighting against the, the goal. That's all I got. I'd say that of those three principles, uh, like when I preach, I, tr I the first two, I try to 
preach the first two. Emphasizing options and focusing on curiosity. Yeah, I I don't find it interesting when people cite their sources in sermons. Mm. You know, and Carl Bart wrote blah blah blah. It's like, come on, that's that's there 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 are media in which that's appropriate mm-hmm. and, and, and in fact required, but the sermon, the the, the oral sermon is not sure. one of those. So I I yeah I, I think that's. That's reasonable, yeah. Sarah, how bad was it? Was it cringy? No, it wasn't cringy. I mean, I think you're doing a really good job of thinking through how your particular uh, sphere, your your project, your project, it can be the most healthy. And so, I think you're like I think the way that you your, your principles reflect a, a an attitude that prioritizes the healthiness of, of the conversation. Um, I think what's 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 becoming more clear as I was listening to you to me is that maybe everybody's anyone who has a platform is going to be exclusionary in some way. So yeah. there are, there are people that are not going to listen to your podcast because you are setting the agenda. And, totally. um, you know, like, for example, it's been discussed widely on the, on the Patreon community that like, you're basically like center left, right. You're pretty much, you know, like liberal leading moderates, but, but yeah. like, it's not going to be a place for people who are really, really deconstructing, like, you know, totally uninterested, uh, in Christianity anymore, um, or people who are more left-leaning, right? And so, like, I think what I'm saying now is, well, maybe that's fine. Like, maybe it's okay that there are borders and boundaries for you and your project, and there are people who will not be drawn to the the spectrum of views and experiences that uh, are represented in your project. But what your project is doing is still extremely healthy, I think is what we could, what I would say. I appreciate that. Can we? Yeah, let's just end on a note of praise for praise me for Dan. and it's my show. Entirely appropriate and apropos. <laughs> uh, well, we'll get some of that. Gets I can reflect it back to you guys as regular contributors to the show. That does feel like a super awkward place to end it uh, on a note of <laughs> praise. So I'll just remind you: uh, if you are a patron, there will be an episode coming soon, maybe around the time that this drops. Actually, about the next two, or maybe I guess it'll be two and a half. Rise and Fall of Mars Hill episodes with Tony and I and Sarah will be back soonish. We've always got stuff to talk about. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Great to be on. Yeah, good times. Thanks to Tony and Sarah for joining me for what was a very fun and interesting conversation. Man, I feel like we opened up about five times as many (laughs) new questions as we answered or even were able to address. So perhaps there needs to be more conversation around that. Um, But I had a ton of fun. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing the conversation. If you'd like to join the Patreon, you can do so. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch and listen to last Tuesday's conversation with Dr. Robin Veldman about evangelical climate skepticism as well as catch up on all of Tony and I's response episodes to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. And there will be another one of those coming next week, uh, maybe even before then, as we respond to the last two and a half episodes, including the Joshua Harris episode. So thanks, guys. See you next week, or rather in two weeks. Unless you're a patron, then I'll see you next week. Everybody else, I'll see you in two weeks. And thank you for uh, being willing to live with this slower schedule as it is a significant help to my own mental health and ability to carry on this podcast while being in school, working, 
uh, and interning, seeing clients, and helping to raise a toddler. See ya. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.